HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and passion. For more information, visit emmyusa.com. This week on Meat and 3, we're getting semantic to understand the deeper meaning behind some of the foods we love. First, we'll look at the big debate happening around the word milk. Who the hell are you to tell me what is the name of my product and my landscape and everything we've cared about when, you know, you don't have anything invested in except to put out a little money to buy it? <laughs> it's our entire life. Then we get the lowdown on the language of cider. So the first thing that's really confusing about dryness is that it has nothing to do with how something actually feels in your mouth. And finally, we get our fill of tiki talk. You don't walk into a tiki bar and be like, oh yeah, this is what Polynesia is probably like. Like, it's, it's supposed to be like fantasy and stuff. That's the hard part. It's so easy to do tiki bad, and that's where it gets a bad name. Tune into this week's episode of Meat and 3. That's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum. I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. If you're just tuning in for the first time, all the previous episodes of Feast Your Ears can be found in the archives at heritageradionetwork.org. I'm thankful for listeners like you, and I'd love it if you'd leave me a review wherever you find this podcast. Today's theme, food markets are the shit, or what's a food court again, Grandpa? When I was a teenager... There was the mall. It was where we went to get baseball mitts, underwear, new shoes, sunglasses, to see movies, and of course, to hang out with our friends. What do you do when you're not getting chased by the security guards for riding your skateboard inside? You go to the food court. With options like Panda Express and Taco Bell, Sbarro, Baskin Robbins, it had all the mediocre food a person could want in an environment where everyone could get his or her own thing, depending on what you wanted to eat that day, and then join up at a collection of rickety tables to eat and laugh and shoot spitballs at each other. It was fun. But the food wasn't really that good. And I, for one, always felt pretty gross after a gordita or a milkshake. That was in the 80s and early 90s. Fast forward to today, and we're living in a time where people are more and more obsessed with food. Food is fuel. Food is fun. Food is cultural capital. Food is about yourself. It's about social media. And I hope it's about enjoying something delicious with your friends and family and connecting with each other. While we're on a mission to get that great shot for Instagram or Facebook or Snapchat, eating food is still one of the few things that technology can't fully take over. 
We have to use our hands and simple tools and chew and swallow and feel to eat food. My guest today is Eldon Scott. I don't think it would be an overstatement to say that he's a, had a huge impact on how New Yorkers shop and eat in today's busy world and how we interact with food, food producers, and small brands. After working with Urban Space in London, the famed creators of Camden Lock and other markets, he moved back to the United States in 1993 to open Urban Space here across the pond. In short order, they opened both the Grand Central Holiday Market and the Union Square Holiday Market, forever changing the landscape of retail in New York. You'll likely recognize their brand from the many indoor and outdoor markets and food halls they operate all over the city. Madison Square Eats, Vanderbilt, 570 Lexington, the Times Square Market, Bryant Park and Union Square Holiday Markets, and many more. Thanks, Eldon, for coming out here to Bushwick in the rain today to chat. Thanks for having me. So you grew up in Massachusetts, in mm -hmm. Manchester-by-the-Sea, north of Boston. Uh, what was it like in that area when you were young? When I think of that area, you know, I think kind of of like yellow rain slickers and like the Gordons fishermen. Um, yeah, you go up to Gloucester and get some. Yeah. <laughs> Lobster rolls. Exactly. Um, there was not a big food scene when I was growing up in the 70s up there. Um, but one of the things I would do as a kid is we'd take the Boston to Maine and to, to Boston. And in 76, the Faneuil uh, uh, Hall was just getting redone. And that was right, kind of, of a course. cool thing. Yeah. And we'd go in there and hang out. And I think that was an earlier generation of what was been happening with food in Marketplace. Sure, absolutely. And I mean, you know, at that time in Boston, I don't actually know the history of Boston all that well. Were there any of the old food markets like we had? I mean, New York had Essex Street and uh, I think of like Detroit had, you know, has a food market. Uh, there was the Hay Market, which okay. was uh, next to where Faneuil Hall came in. And right. um, the Rouse Company uh, and Benjamin Thompson Associates were the architects um, came in and it was one of the first, quote unquote, festival marketplaces. And they, I've heard the story before, they kind of ran over to the hay market and grabbed a bunch of those old carts and dragged them over to Faneuil Hall. Got it. And their initial idea was to work more with uh, small businesses. But I, th I think it, it's very interesting because in that era, which was in the, the 70s around the bicentennial, and this was true in other countries as well, the focus was more about renovating the city. So it was more about the building and the old sure. bricks. Yeah. And less about the entrepreneurs. Right, right. And and less about sort of either, you know, getting back to them. I and now I think we look backwards at the 19th century and we think about, you know, what did these cities look like? And, oh, it must have been so much better without thinking about, you know, coal smoke and horse manure and all that other stuff. But we think about these kind of neighborhood ideals of small businesses that you would know. And I think we've seen an incredible resurgence to that in the last 20 or 30 years, um, yeah. you know, in, in, in food, especially in New York, in no small part to the work that you've done. So you then, uh, you went to Yale, mm -hmm. right? And then you went to London for, 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 uh, at the London School of Economics. I went to Yale and I thought I'd become an architect until my TA totally dissed me on my first project and I realized <laughs> I couldn't draw. So I thought, that's not going to work for me. Even though I thought my ideas were great, but I just couldn't present them on a piece of paper very sure. well. Um, so I ended up studying architectural history and much more interested in built environment and how the environment impacts people and how we impact the environment. And I think that was the start of that journey for me. And when I ended up in London studying at LSE, it was really a further exploration of planning and, and how cities work. And I would say I'm, I'm not a chef. I'm really an urban planner. Right, right. And uh, I mean, what was happening in London at that time like when you got there i mean i you know i know london uh, much like new york went through some pretty dark 
times and has sort of come out the other side of that, much like New York into, you know, being a place where, you know, on the on the one side, people would say it's become gentrified. On the other side, people call it a resurgence, right? Sort of well, interestingly the enough, coin. They, were, they were still really looking towards the U.S. for for major uh, kind of architecture and development ideas, mm. which I think is actually flip-flopped. I think we right. look a lot more now towards London and Europe. Yeah. Um, Olympia New York had just was developing Isle of Dogs at that time. Margaret Thatcher was prime minister. And I th- I was one of the reasons I got a job there initially. I worked for, for a company called Savills, which is a property company. Was they were looking for Americans to translate um, the American ideas huh. for some of their local clients. And... At that time, uh, some of the big projects in New York, um, like Battery Park City, were seen right. as models. Got it. And I think that that scale, that that's sort of flip-flopped. I was um, lucky or uh, to meet Eric Reynolds while I was working in more corporate real estate. And he had always been working in marketplaces in, in the bowels of the city. And that mm. was much more interesting to me. For people listening, Eric Reynolds is the founder of Urban Space. Yes. And he founded it in London in 1972. When did you come to work for him? Oh, God. Um, no, he founded, it was 1972 oh, yeah. when he founded um, Urban Space. And really the first big project was Camden Lock. Right. And that started in the 70s. And it was, a, at that time, um, there were still trading blue laws. So you couldn't really open on the high street on Sundays. Oh, but, interesting. But, but markets were given up by because it was a market, you could go buy your vegetables. Ah, so the open air allowed it to be open on Sundays. Just the fact that it was a market. It was a market. And yeah. it was one of the, Camden Lock is one of the first private markets, um, I guess, post-war. You had Portobello Road and other markets that were run by the councils. But Camden was, was private. It was really first organized by Eric. And um, it was interesting because, you know, where, there was no place to go on a Sunday. So a lot of the young people in London would get down to Camden. And it kind of coincided with what was going on in music. Sure. Um, kind of the punk rock scene was happening. And... There was a club called Dingwalls, which was part of Camden, and that became kind of a heart for what was happening. Hmm. So really, I mean, it, 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 I, it sounds like it was like a perfect mesh with what you were interested in, what you were studying is how does the architecture influence the people? What, you know, how do these communities get created? Um, and, you know, I, I've always wondered, and I, I would love to hear your thoughts on this, about, you know, obviously people talk about creating community all the time, but people sometimes have better success or not. With that, um, you know, have you, do you have any, I guess, uh, you know, words of wisdom is the wrong way to put it, but things that you've learned over the years that you feel like have been key to creating those communities? I mean, I've I've always been interested. I always feel like I've been on the edge between what I would call industry, you know, like ICSC and the shopping mall world um, and in like things like markets like I'd experienced in London and just trying to figure out in my head, like, what's the difference? Like, why do I go into a mall? And it feels entirely different than going into a really awesome market in the major yeah. city. Um, and I, you know, I think that over time, the first big project I was the, the manager of was, was Spitalfields Market. And Spitalfields had been a fruit and veg wholesale market for, you know, since Henry VIII. Um, and it, when I came into the company, they were just moving the wholesale operation to the outskirts of London. And we were going to operate a retail consumer market mm. in there. And we had plenty of space, but we didn't have um, a lot of customers because it was still a part of East London that, that didn't have a lot of foot traffic. And the analogy that we come up with is it's like setting a table. And that's where that's where that kind of authenticity comes from. 
So we weren't trying to top-down plan this thing. We were just inviting people to a great dinner party. Right. And we were choosing, you know, obviously we had a guest list, yeah. and we thought a little bit about who sat next to whom. But the energy really comes from the collection of, of great people, real people, uh, and real designers and real chefs together, and not us determining, like, what's the menu, what's the price, what's, and that's what a market is. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I, I assume in the early days, and, and I, I, you know, I know this to be true from people that I know that are, you know, that operate at Madison Square Eats and that kind of thing, that most of it I was, you know, owner operator, right, who had maybe a single stall. Obviously, as both what Urban Space does and as those brands have grown, that changes a little bit, right? Do you see any, um, have you seen any of that community, I guess, kind of dilute? where you end up with someone who maybe is a brand that has grown, maybe started with you guys at Urban Space, but now has a dozen locations, and it's not the owner-operator that the customer is interacting with. I think that's an ongoing challenge yeah. because you know people are, I, I think one of the parts of the energy when you go to a great market is that you're working, you're, you're meeting and talking to the owner or at least an entrepreneur or a sure. manager or someone who's really um, has a commitment and dedicated to that business. Um, it, but it's been going on since the 70s. Um, the Body Shop, which is a global company now, started on a stall. Actually, she started in the Midlands, but her first London store was a stall at Camden Lock. And hmm. she was selling you know, her shampoos out of a, over a table. Yeah. And that grew and grew and grew. So I, we get excited or happy when people's businesses grow. Yeah. And sometimes they will grow out of the market environment. Right. And that's fine because we're yeah. like one little piece of the whole ecosystem of right. building building your own business. Yeah, absolutely. And so then in 93, you returned to the US, you came back to New York. And what was the retail scene like in New York at that time? Like how, how did you identify uh, Grand Central as a place to put a market? Well, it was interesting. Back then, it was you know, it was all about like European style market. Right. And there wasn't a giant uh, group of potent of vendors because the the vendor world would be craft shows and like macrame. Yeah. Um, and there wasn't that scene hadn't really fully developed yet. There weren't um, you know kids with degrees who wanted to start a great food brand or a great design sure, the, brand. The entrepreneur as, culture as that we now exist in didn't really exist in 1993. It, it was there, but it was more subterranean and hadn't really risen up. So, but we you know we were. Th- so we were thinking about that kind of European style market and we thought, you know, Grand Central would be a fabulous place to start that. Um, sure. And I remember at the time the MTA saying like, we only had three months to put the, put the first event on. And I was like, nope, we can make this work. And we just went out and started talking to lots of entrepreneurs and we found those people that did exist. And we looked carefully at what kind of products they had. We brought them together and kind of the rest is history. Right. I mean, I, I imagine now sort of you, so the first years you, I, I guess, had to go out and kind of find these people, right? I mean, people must be knocking down your door at this point, right, to get into any of these markets, because I imagine almost across the board that it has to be a success for people when you're talking about the, I mean, I, you know, when I go to the Union Square holiday market, the volume of customers that you see, I would imagine that just about everybody who's there is doing well from that market. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, there's definitely a huge, huge demand and it's um, important you know, we're both trying to find great products and we're trying to keep those relationships really strong. So, yeah. you know, we're always, you know, curating, if you will. Um, but it's, it's, 
here's a great analogy. Um, what we see, what we do is like creating an artificial reef. So if you've ever snorkeled, um, people will go out and throw old cinder blocks and tires um, out New York in the City water, subway cars. <laughs> or New York City subway cars, or I guess parts of the bridge. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the life of that is not the cinder blocks. It's the, the fish. So it's, it's really that vendor community that we bring together. But there is an art to how you lay down those cinder blocks and those tires. If you spread them out too far, you're not going to have a community. Right. So we're ultimately trying to build a community. But we're trying to create an infrastructure that sets up that community. Right. Um, when you shop at the markets, do the vendors know who you are? They used to all knew who I, I know, was. I know, I assume. I used to go through with my big yellow slicker from Gloucester <laughs> and shovel and you know get the rain off the yeah. tops and stuff like that. So uh, I would say now it's down to probably half of them who know sure. who I am. There's like and, too many projects. And, and I assume you have some vendors that have been with the markets for a very long time. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, we have... You know, we have uh, one, one guy who started with me very first market in Grand Central, and he's his kids are growing up. He sent them off to college, and actually, that's an interesting point because the the goal and the purpose of what we do is supporting businesses. Right. So if if the uh, project that we're setting up doesn't produce enough revenue for that business to be viable, then we don't think it's a successful project. Sure, absolutely. So when we see people who have been able to um, you know, lead their lives, bring up families. That's our version of sustainability is economic sustainability. Yeah. I mean, you guys exist in a, in, in, I find to be a fascinating crossroads. And we were speaking briefly about this before the show of, you know, are you a real estate company? You are now heavily into food, but you're not a food company. Uh, you know, you're kind of an incubator, right. As well. And yet above all of that, you have a brand. So urban space is a brand now that many New Yorkers and people in other cities and globally know, but they know you not for the fact that you serve them food, not for the fact that you make a product, but that you're providing this market environment, I guess. Yeah. I mean, we see ourselves as an infrastructure brand. Yeah. So we're, it's a brand of brands. So we're trying to create that environment for people's individual brands to, to thrive and flourish. So that's kind of the paradigm that we've set up. But you're right. We, it, we've been confused ourselves. We're like, are we, are we a real estate company? Are we a hospitality company? Right. I think as this has evolved, we've seen ourselves move from thinking of ourselves as a real estate company more towards hospitality because we realized that we had to provide more culture um, sure. than we were. The, you know, it's not about just signing people up and collecting the rent. It's about creating keeping that sense of community going. Sure. I mean, look at Bryant Park, right? I mean, the, the market in Bryant Park is not just a market. I mean, there's a lot of other things happening there. There's ice skating. There are other events that happen in the same space during that holiday season. So, you know, and I don't know specifically what hand urban space has in that, but it's all part of the same event from the consumer side. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I mean, there's nothing that creates an event better than people. So if you right. can, you know, get lots of people, that's, that's part of what the excitement of the whole the whole thing is. And Bryant Park's been successful that yeah. way. Was food always a part of the plan? I mean, you know, was was serving people, I guess, ready to eat food always part of it, or was that something that came later after doing these holiday markets? Food was a smaller part of it. It was a, it was you know I don't know percent, but it was never the major part of it. It started out as a as a the marketplaces were about retail, and even if you look at Camden Lock in the seventies, same thing. It was really about. Um, you know, kids who would go to Bali and come back with a bunch of like 
printed fabrics and sell them in the market. Sure. And you could get a big paella or there'd be different food available, but that was kind of supporting the retail. Yeah. And I think that that really changed around the time of the recession. Um, you know, just before and around the recession, I think two things happened. One, um, social media and the internet really came into came into the fore and people could start, you know, as you know here, start creating their own brand and really publishing and pushing that out. So you had food trucks that were like tweeting yeah. what, what, what corner they're on. So that was kind of bubbling up. <clears throat> so technology was part of it. And then also a lot of people were, you know, weren't working at a bank anymore. Right. We have a lot of people like that. You know, yeah. they're like, you know, to hell with it. I'm not going to have that job anymore. I want to start a business. So after the recession, and I was hiding under my desk like everyone else. I was like, oh. <laughs> right. And we, what interesting thing at, at Union Square at the holiday market, which was Christmas time. Yeah. And the market crashed, I think, in October. Yep. So I was like, oh my God, is anyone going to come out? Right, right. Is it going to work? And people came out in droves because they wanted to be with other people. They wanted the sense of community and the sense of place. They didn't want to hide under their desk. They didn't want to yeah. hide under their desk. And it was, you know, just enough weeks had passed. So we, yeah. we got out from under our desk. Yeah. So we actually saw more people than ever um, after that whole financial crisis. And it was exciting for us to, to see that happen. That's awesome. We're going to take a short break and hear from one of our sponsors here at Heritage Radio. And when we come back, I want to talk about uh, urban space outside New York City. Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and passion. Since the early 1900s, Emmy has been a passionate supporter of farmers, cheesemakers, and family tradition. They believe in sustainable agriculture and respect for the people, land, and animals that make their business possible. Remaining dedicated to tradition, they strive to lead the industry in innovation, ensuring they bring you only the highest quality, best tasting cheese from Switzerland. Emmy is best known for importing more than 80% of Swiss Gruyere into the United States, but that's not to overshadow their other specialty cheeses, including Kotbalk Cave-Age cheeses, Appenzeller, Tete de Mon, and traditional Emmentaler. For more information, visit emmyusa.com. Hey there, seems like you like podcasts. My name is Eli Sussman. I'm a chef and restaurant owner, and I've got a great podcast right here on Heritage Radio Network called The Line. On my show, I interview chefs and restaurateurs about the trajectory of their career. It's a one-on-one -on -one conversation where we talk about where it all started to where they are cooking now and everything in between. You can find The Line everywhere you get your podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and joining me in the studio today is Eldon Scott from Urban Space. And before the break, we were talking about what exactly Urban Space is and does and about the different sorts of markets. Um, I wanted to talk about what's next. So you guys, you know, your parent company, I guess, or the, the, the sort of uh, 
the top end is in London and operating in England. And then you came to the United States in 93 and now are all over New York City, pretty much. I feel like you can't go anywhere without bumping into, you know, even when I'm not planning to, I end up in the middle of Madison Square Eats. And, you know, it's nice to nice to find that stuff. Um, you guys have just recently taken over and revamped a space in the D.C. area in mm-hmm. Virginia, right? Mm-hmm. Um, are there other expansions planned for the United States? Yeah, we're, you know, we're looking um, all across the U.S. Yeah. and we have a, a number of things going and it it's an interesting point in time because I didn't think that 20 years ago, I didn't think you could replicate a market because well, I remember talking to Eric about this in probably 1990. Like, we were sitting in Camden Lock in this great thing and we were thinking, you know, can you do this? How do you how do you replicate this energy of this yeah. place and this thing? And did this one just happen to work in this place in this time, or can we go do this in other places? Right? Yeah, and I, I do think you know backing up. It's you know one of the reasons why people are interested in this model right now is that we've much of the retail model has been so top down, right? Where you have like a, a you know one concept, one set of designers, some at a headquarters, and then they push down that brand and those concepts, and I. Th- think that's been a very valuable part of the whole post-war growth of this country sure. and globally. Um, but I think there's an interest in a more bottom-up type of approach to to food and to retail. And, and that's kind of where a lot of this experiential stuff comes from that people are kind of you know longing for. Sure. So our thought was, yeah, we can do this, and, but how do you do it without, you know, and, and remain true to what you're trying to do? Yeah. So... You know, my our thought on that is that look, we're just we are just that infrastructure company. So we're going to come with our tools to any location, which is it has to do with you know space and has to do with bringing you know hoods and infrastructure in, and there's a certain amount of capital required and a marketing process and so on and so forth. But it's really always got to be about about the vendors in that community, and that's kind of what holds true for us that we're trying to do in every location we go to. Well, and it, and it seems like, I mean, it's a, it's a great, it, it's a really great and smart confluence of a lot of different things. I mean, if you look at malls, which have been on the decline, right, you have one big store like a Sears go out of a mall. It's a huge hit for the ownership, right? It's a huge revenue hit. If you have a market where you have 40 vendors and one of them goes out of business, that's not really that big a hit. Right. You can hopefully yeah. find someone else, but finding someone to take over a Sears kind of size space is harder and harder. Right. Yeah. And I think it, it depends on which center you're talking about. And yeah. some it's pretty easy to, to retain it and figure that out. And I'm I'm learning a lot all the time, which is kind of exciting for me. Um, and we are working in some shopping center environments um, gingerly. But, you know, our our brand and our soul is about supporting vendors. So if in a certain community, most of the shoppers and consumers are in a shopping center, then we feel that's okay for us to go there. Right. Um, we were talking before about the idea of thresholds and, and how you define space. And you know, we've had that experience. We're working on something down in Tyson's in a shopping environment. And one of the things we're trying to figure out are those boundaries between the larger atrium that you typically experience in a shopping center and, you know, creating a, a, a cozier place where you can hear the noise of the, sh- of the uh, diners and so on and so forth. So that's been 
a really interesting discovery for us is to figure out how to how the space works right and 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 the product mix right and what the what is the psychology of the consumer who comes to that space and are, you know, I, in my experience, have found that it is, you know, people come to a place with something in mind and it's very hard, not that they are unwilling to do something else, but it's very hard to shift people's psychology because it's really a subconscious thing. If you are going to a place, like if you're going to Madison Square Eats, for instance, right there in the name, right, you're going there because you want to eat a Roberta's pizza or you want to go to Mr. Bang or you want to eat something, right, that you can pick up and eat right then, it's very unlikely that that consumer then is going to be like, oh, you know, I do need some new sneakers. Here's a vendor selling sneakers. I'm not, you know, they're not in that sort of purchasing mindset. Or maybe, oh, this is some really great, you know, granola. Are they going to buy it to take home and eat for breakfast the next morning? Really, really hard to tell without something that sort of triggers that change. Yeah, I mean, we saw that we had a project in um, in London in Wimbledon where there was a major shop uh, grocery store, and we we were um, because of the local council required it. We did a market next to the major grocery store. And we found there wasn't that much crossover. Uh, that people people would see it and it was helpful, and they would come back on another trip, right, to hang out. Yeah. Um, and that's to some degree we're seeing a little bit of that in in some of the larger shopping centers. It's not necessarily the same trip, or there's there's multiple audiences of consumers coming and using the same building for different reasons. Oh, sure. Right. So they're coming in and, 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 and I mean, I guess then that's the, you know, I guess the, the secondary trip is fine if they do come back, right? Like from a, from a revenue standpoint, but if they are just there to eat and they're not there to shop and that's the only thing they go there for, then that can present some challenges. But even with vendors, we talk to them a lot uh, about, um, you know, they, they get a booth, which might be 12 feet, it might be 16 feet. It's, it's a relatively small piece of real estate. And they, to your point about psychology, they have to really come up with what their product is. And if it's too complicated, it, it can't be a giant deli menu because right. no one really knows you know, what that is and they're making fairly quick decisions. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's true of the whole project as well. Like, what is this? Why are people going there? And what context are you putting it in is all important. Yeah, and so, I mean, something that I've seen from people I know who've done these markets is that they also help each other out, right? I mean, you have people in, you know, Vanderbilt, I know a couple of the, a couple of the tenants there, and they help each other out with things, which I think also speaks to a more modern sort of way of operating a business. I think 25, 30 years ago, especially in restaurants, chefs weren't sharing information. They, they held very close to their chest where they got their ingredients or what their techniques were because they felt like that was what they were trading on. And now I think we live in a completely different environment where people say, oh, man, that, you know, that meat was really good. Where'd you get it? People share that stuff at the drop of a hat. Um, and they share ideas and they share menu thoughts. And, and even, obviously, in, in a lot of the spaces you're creating, they have to share space, right? Because not everybody has you know, their dedicated storage space and not everybody has a walk-in cooler and things like that. Yeah. Well, no, a lot of the, I mean, the facilities are shared. Yeah. The, the seating, um, the marketing, the windows. So everyone's in it together. Um, this may seem like kind of a weird question, but uh, do you think that urban space would ever do anything rural? You know, I think of places like tor- like Tourists Welcome, which is opened in Western Massachusetts as sort of a, a destination. I mean, it's more of a, you know, that's a residential kind of uh, uh, almost a motel kind of space with music and Wilco's involved and, you know, that kind of thing. But there's also food and, food and beverage uh, happening there as well. I mean, we always go back to the, the lens of supporting the vendor. So if we're economically, um, you know, sustainable yeah. and there's a certain amount of money that each of these, uh, chefs or businesses needs to make, 
we need to back into what that traffic is. Right. So if we can create that traffic, yeah, we'll go anywhere. But it's harder, obviously, once you, once you go to a lower and lower density place. Of course, yeah. Um, so that's that's the challenge there. And at this point, I mean, uh, you know, how do projects find you? I mean, like, so Virginia, were you guys looking for a place to, to do something in the D.C. area? Or did the mall owner approach you about having space to use? Both. I mean, yeah. we, you know, D.C. is definitely on our, our target list. Sure, the density so, is there. And then also the, the owner came to us. So, you know, we spend a lot more time right now. Well, I, I thought for a while I was such a hero because all these people were calling me up. And then someone said, well, it's just because you got a pulse. So don't, <laughs> don't feel so good about yourself. So we do get a lot of inbound calls. I mean, and, and I, I imagine, you know, I, I think it's really, uh, I think it's it's great that you guys really do have a clear sense of what can create your market. Um, because I imagine, especially as, you know, as you have grown, I'm sure you get all the inbound calls. Everybody who's got an empty building anywhere probably is like, oh, I bet these guys would be great to come in here, right? But then you have a whole lot of, you know, your job is not, hundred percent to filter people who want you to use their space, right? You have a lot of other things going on at the company. So our, our job is not necessarily to, uh, just enhance a particular piece of property somewhere. Our job is to support the businesses. Yeah. So if they can both work together, which the better projects, I thought it all does happen that way, but some locations are just not going to work. Yeah. Tell me about the city test kitchen. Oh, that, um, so that was something we've been thinking about doing for a couple of years. And we wanted to um, be able to have a mechanism to reach out into the community and find a young chef that hadn't um, yet had an opportunity to work in an urban space or another market or, or just had that that experience. So um, the test city test kitchen is is a, a something we put out to the public. We get lots of inquiries and uh, we review them. We had a, a little event last fall, and we. Um, you know, came up with the, the, the first winner and we put them in in, um, in one of our projects. And it's been really exciting. I mean, there's a big learning curve because if this is a person who hasn't had a major restaurant before, right? so they have to learn about volume. And it's very different from having one or two dishes which taste great and all the food tastes great. And we've really been helping them and learning from each other about how you turn that into a real volume business and not lose you know, the character or your own brand right. in that process. So it's been, it's been a lot of fun doing that. And urban space doesn't like within a space like Vanderbilt or 570 Lexington, urban space doesn't operate any of the food and beverage, right? You guys don't operate the bar or any of that stuff. You're no. just there wholly to support the, yeah. to support the vendors who are yeah. in the space. And we've done that consciously um, because again, if our focus is supporting the, these businesses, um, we don't want to, take pieces of the business away. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Are there any projects that you guys uh, have sort of gone down the road of trying to do that just you couldn't? That like Oh, lots of, I mean, lots of over the years, a lot yeah. of failed projects. Yeah. And I, th I think that that's part of the learning process. Um, you know, I think that a, a lot of this is just experience, experience. Like you see things that works, that doesn't work, that works, that doesn't work. One of the things we learned is that retail should always be facing retail. Um, mm. I've done different layouts, even at Union Square, because every every year that's we have an opportunity to re change right. what the layout sure. is. And over the years, we would learn like little lessons about how wide should the street be, how mm. wide should the stores be, and yeah. we could iteratively kind of kind of change that. So a lot of that background has kind of come to the come to the fore as we develop these food halls. And it's great that you've had the time to adjust it, right? That it, you didn't just do it once. 
but you've had time at a space like Union Square to do those iterative changes to really learn those things. The, the pain of a not successful project um, stays with you and you're really careful about not putting other businesses into a situation where they're not going to make money or, you know, this is a big bet for a lot of people yeah. and they've got to buy equipment, they've got to get going. So, you know, we're really careful about trying to get a great situation for them. Yeah. Is there, do you have like a dream space? Like, is there a space that you have in mind where you really, really want to do a market or, or a place or a city where you really want to do a market that you haven't had the opportunity yet? I would say the, the, the bigger dream of all this, uh, which we have not done yet, is to start to understand what the old-fashioned Main Street of America really is or, or was or could be. And to us, it's like triangulating um, entrepreneurs and businesses with, with local consumers. And I, I think that you know, the, the trajectory of retail over, over the last 50 years has moved away from that. Yeah. But I think the consumer actually wants that. So how do you bring that back? Um, and that's something that's certainly of interest to us. I think that's, I mean, I, I think that's a, a fascinating, I mean, you know, I think that's a fascinating thing to explore because, yeah, we, we are in a position where people lament the loss of Main Street, except that part of the reason that Main Street's gone is people are shopping at Walmart and at Amazon, right? And so you have yeah. this weird thing where people don't necessarily either know what they want or know how to support what they want. So I think it's also about consumer education. I think it's about making sure that people, and, and perhaps people understanding that you are a brand actually will help support that, I think. I think that uh, people understanding what a space that is put together by urban space means, whether they have ever been inside or not, um, I think is valuable in that because if it's just a, you know, I don't know, I, not to say just, but the idea that it's a food hall could mean lots of things. Right, everything now from a food court, because I'm sure there are lots of what I would refer to as a food court that are being called food halls, um, all the way up to and including the way you very carefully put your things together. Um, all of that, I think, can help drive people to understand that that's what they want, um, yeah. and that can help those businesses. We, we had an interesting um, meeting, um, I don't know, a year and a half ago. Uh, Eric Reynolds was there from London. We were meeting at Pike's Place Market in Seattle. It was for a markets conference. Hmm. And the manager of Pike's Place was there, um, a guy from South Africa who'd worked on a big market there. So it was kind of some of the lions of, of markets, some going back to the 70s, because Pike's Place actually was redone in the 70s. So a lot of things had were born out of that era. So we all got in a van to drive up to um, Vancouver to go to Granville Island. And halfway up, we had to stop get gas. And we pulled, pulled off, and we went into a little strip center. And Eric you know, from London is like, well, where's the town? I'm like, well, this is the town. It's the strip center. Yeah. And we were just talking all the way up in the van, like, how do you bring places back so whatever community you live in, doesn't have to be a very big place, but just a place where you can go, go down to the corner and there's going to be businesses that you know, and hopefully you're going to run into people you know, whether they're close friends or they're just acquaintances from that community. And yeah. that's, that would be a dream. Yeah. And I think there's been some kind of like interesting attempts at that. I mean, I think of like Ridge Hill in Yonkers. Have you been up there? I haven't been. I mean, it, it, it's effectively, I would describe it as a mall that's mm. shaped like a downtown. 
Mm. So, I mean, there are like metered parking spaces along in front of stores, but it's all big mall kind of, uh, you know, vendors. It's not, you know, it's not that sort of main street thing. And then, of course, there's parking behind so that like when you park behind, you kind of feel like you're behind the studio set. And then when you walk down the main street, you kind of feel like you're in a TV show. Right. a little bit right. so it's yeah. a, like I, you know they definitely I don't think they get it right um, but I think it would be very interesting to see something that almost was like that with the small town vendors yeah. and you know online shopping doesn't make it easy because a lot of that revenue has been moved out of that brick and mortar location obviously to digital so you may be dealing with a different set of revenue streams yeah. people are still want to go out and, and you know and dine out and buy food there's maybe that might change over time but it's still still strong so that's one way to bring people together and there's still a lot of local services that people want to go out for like getting a haircut or you know yeah. getting some, buying some nails um so it's you know the landscape is definitely changing as yeah. we all know for sure. Well, I think, you know, but, but I think it's exciting and I think we're, I think we're in an exciting time. Um, well, we're almost out of time. I wanted to ask, you had mentioned in the, your responses to my pre-show questionnaire that if you could have dinner with anybody, it would be John Adams. And I'm curious to know, uh, if there's a specific one of your markets that you would want to take him to. Hmm. I would take him to Spitalfields. I mean, even though it's, we don't manage that anymore, uh, cause it was such a formative place for me to, to cut my teeth on sure. what markets are. And, and I guess, I guess presumably he could have in theory set foot there at one time during his did. life, right? Absolutely. could have. Yeah. <laughs> he may well have because Biddlefields existed back yeah. then. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much Alden, for joining me on Feast thank Your you. Ears today. Thanks everybody for listening to Feast Your Ears today. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Please take a moment to rate and review the show and reach out to me if you have any questions. You can reach me at over email, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com. You can follow me on Instagram at thefoodballer, and you can keep up with everything that Urban Space is doing on Twitter and Instagram at urbanspacenyc. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners just like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.